welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema, and this week is 1914. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, jo- oh, and joining us uh, for the second time, not as usual, but as a guest, uh, please welcome... Marco Rumo, I'm a film writer. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're a, uh, we're, as, as I discussed earlier, we are a film history podcast. Um, we are plumbing the depths of silent film, of public domain film. And so if you are interested in watching these movies, you can watch them for free online. Uh, we've got a playlist that you can check out that's linked in the description uh, that has all the things we're about to talk about, so you can watch them for yourself beforehand. Or, if you stick around and you're on the YouTube version, we'll be playing uh, little selections from them while we talk about them. Uh, so anyway, uh, how, how's it going, everybody? What's What have you been up to? So much in one week, one year. Um, it's felt like a year in one week. No, I... Uh, been helping my sister move that's the exciting week i've had Mm. oh fun so what what's like a movie or show not for the podcast that you watched this week or read a book or anything um oh i watched a a new movie called synchronicity or no not synchronicity synchronic different movie uh who's in it when's it when's it from did you watch uh, synchronic for 420 i did not (laughs) i actually watched it i think the day before um (laughs) But at but, midnight, uh, so it was 4.20. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it was released at festivals like a few years ago, but it just came out um, on streaming. Um, and it's kind of a cool, uh, like, sci-fi, mind-bendy movie. Nice. With uh, Anthony Mackie. Oh, Falcon. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. You, re- you recommend it? I think if, if you're into like weird sci-fi mind bendy things, then yeah, for sure. It, it was what was it on like Amazon Prime or Hulu? It, it is on Netflix, American Netflix. Netflix. Good. Okay, I was gonna go to Canada and try to watch it, but thank you yeah. for telling me. No need. Did you watch anything interesting, Marco? Lately, I ha- was obsessed with uh, the Cartoon Network slash HBO Max show Infinity Train, which um, I had mentioned to you before. It's it was really good. It's uh, really dark and really mature and synthy, cool, vapor wavy music and vibes. And it was um, amazing. I recommend it. Mm. I could take that. I I don't think I, I I'm not good at watching things in general. I just watch I watch YouTube and stuff for this podcast. Um, but <laughs> I did like watch a video, a video game or something. Uh, and I, the only video game that I play is Spelunky. So that, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm stuck in a, in a loop of, of the same thing, but I can move on one year at a time. So there's that at least one week, one year. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Uh, considering that we are a film history podcast, uh, we like to give ourselves a little bit of context for what we, uh, what, what's happening in the year that we're discussing. Uh, so we bring you the news from 1914, Glenn, would you take it away? The news of the year, 1914. The war to end all wars. 
Serbian nationalist Gavrilo Princip assassinates Archduke Franz Ferdinand, presumptive to the throne of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. After negotiations break down, Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. Russia mobilizes in support of Serbia. The German Empire then declares war on Russia. France joins the fray and the New York Stock Exchange shuts down. Germany signals intent to declare war on France, Russia's ally. They give a 12-hour ultimatum to neutral Belgium, asking for passage through the country to France. When Belgium refuses, they invade. A Zeppelin bombing campaign begins. The British Empire declares war on the German Empire to defend France and in retaliation to the violation of Belgian neutrality. The United States declares neutrality. Germany officially declares war on Belgium. The Kingdom of Montenegro declares war on Austria-Hungary. And Austria-Hungary declares war on the Empire of Russia. Thus concludes week one of the Great War. In the coming weeks, Britain declares war on Austria-Hungary, Japan declares war on Germany, Turkey wars with Belgium, and South Africa wars with Germany. Benito Mussolini's warlike and nationalist attitude gets him kicked out of the Italian Socialist Party, who don't support Italy's entry into a bourgeois war. Anarchists attempt to build a bomb to assassinate John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest American of all time. Their bomb prematurely explodes and they perish. Days later, over 5,000 gather in Union Square to mourn them. Dispatches from the Mexican Revolution. After clutching the presidency in a coup only a year earlier, Victoriano Huerta resigns and flees the country. Martha, the last known passenger pigeon, dies of old age in the Cincinnati Zoo. Babe Ruth makes his debut in the major leagues. The Cape Cod Canal is completed, turning a peninsula to an island. Silence over the Western Front. Christmas Eve inspires a temporary ceasefire and truce in the trenches. W.W. Hudkinson founds the Paramount Pictures Corporation. All right, thank you. What Glenn. a year. <laughs> what a year. What a year. What a, a lot week, of what a year. A lot of war were declared this year. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. I I completely forgot that you you guys are about are not far off from like a, the pandemic. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Uh, about four H1 years. H one N one. Yeah. Oh yes, the H one N one pandemic. That that's correct. Um. Also, one one thing that uh, I probably should have added to the the news segment, but didn't. But it's probably worth mentioning is because of World War One, we're kind of at the end of the end of an era of uh, European films because they a lot of European studios had to shut down, and uh, a yeah. lot of the chemicals they needed to make film stock got. Uh, either broken down or used to make uh, explosives. And so the whole kind of European film industry effectively shuts down for a few years, allowing the the US of A to really swoop in and, and kind of take the take the lead. This is my understanding of events too, is that, you know, pre World War One is the era of European film technique and artistry supremacy and then when they become kind of consumed with with the the world war ones um the americans kind of fill the gap and then mm. hollywood reigns forever <sighs> so hopefully they can and we're gonna talk about it. hopefully they can pass the muster the, the and and actually improve their game i, I mean I always, mm. I always think about like the alternate histories where like um if things went a different way where it's like uh, people talk about like Miami or Jacksonville or places like that might have been like the, the Hollywood. Yeah. 
Like, hmm, what a different world. I mean, honestly, if World War I hadn't happened, it could have been likely that Paris would have been the Hollywood, that the film industry from 1914 on would have been dominated by France, which yeah. no, uh, no Avengers, you know? It's possible. I mean, America is still super imperialist. Even French even Avengers. French Avengers. What would they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They would be Captain France. Well, no, and... Fantomas would, would be in it, right? Yeah. He'd be their Loki. He'd be like, ooh, he's sexy, even though he's a bad guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of Fantomas, uh, I'd like everyone, I'd like to welcome everyone to the second, the second episode of The Cereal Bowl. <laughs> We're here to discuss the last two episodes of Louis Fouillade's Fantomas. Fantomas. I keep having to correct myself every time I say it. Yeah, the O with the little arrow over it's like a ooh. Yeah. The Ace Phantom. What did you all think of these two ultimate and penultimate Fantomas episodes? Still pretty great. Mm -hmm. Um, Not really a uh, a super, um, not really a, a a closed and shut conclusion, I should say. No, yeah, left open ended certainly. Yeah, I I read on French Wikipedia. I, I translated it and it or I hit the translate button and it, um, <laughs> they were saying that a lot of audiences at the time. Now this is Wikipedia, so I guess anybody can edit it and I whatever. But they said that people knew the books well enough that. It was kind of just like, let's just see how they adapt it. Like, nobody was really sitting there thinking like, oh, how's, how's Phantomas going to get out of this one? It's kind of like seeing um, a comic book adaptation today a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a lot of stuff that happened in these. A lot of intrigue. Uh, yeah, certainly. as it's always. A dense, it's a dense show. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, within the course of an hour or an hour and change, it's a lot of plots machinations going back and forth you know i try and write summaries as i'm watching these things uh so i can just remember the bullet points of of what happens but it ends up being so long for every episode of phantom yes they're like they're (laughs) movies even though they're like you know technically like half or a third the length of a movie it's like short movies (laughs) yeah yeah no they, they they really they pack a lot of plot into into each one um I guess starting with episode four, where we left off, um, I think I think episode three overall was my favorite episode, but I think episode four might be my second favorite mm-hmm. because it had, just has such such juicy setup. Um, <laughs> it's got a, a costume ball, um, and it has not one Phantomas, but three Phantomases. Phantomasi. Yeah. This is uh, this episode's called Phantomas versus Phantomas, but. Should have should have added Dawn another of verse. Dawn of Justice. Ha 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 ha. We'll get to in, it. In this one, one of Fantomas's uh, aliases or disguises is an American private detective <laughs> named Tom Bob, which is just a <laughs> chef's kiss fake American name. Yeah, <laughs> really convincing to all the French people. That's gonna um, be my alias. I I did I love thinking about that. Like 
Louis Fiat is just like, what? Oh, it's just like, I need an American name. Uh, Tom Bob. That's but American, he, right? He writes it on his business card. He's like, Tom yeah. Bob, American detective. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, um, I'm Mrs. And he looks at the newspaper, police doubt fire. I'm Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> um, there are some really cool, like, horrific imagery in this one, too, including, like, a body that is... Uh, stashed inside of a wall, like it, it within a wall, and then mm. they they come, you know, they they start digging through the wall, and then blood starts kind of pouring out of the walls. <laughs> That's rad. <laughs> it's very this whole Phantomas just as a whole is very uh, macabre. Yes, yeah. I would say in a, in a fun question. Way. Do you guys know? Um, do like just Europe get like film censorship the way the U.S. does? Are you talking about like like? In the way of the code, like the Hayes Code? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about that. I guess we'll find out. I know that, like, we have heard stuff about local um, country-level censorship boards, like, um, or at least things being censored in certain mm-hmm. European countries. Um, but I don't know about something as all-encompassing as, yeah. Yeah. as the, the American code. It's It seems like it's more of a kind of case-by-case basis where sometimes a film will get imported to a different country and it'll get yeah. some some scenes cut out. Yeah, that's still, I mean, that still happens today, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, there and also there wasn't much of a European Union to broadly decide European affairs at this point. In, in mm. fact, the European continent yeah, was very much apart. not... Very much not yeah. in union at this time. <laughs> yeah, isn't it so Quite weird the to, opposite. Think, <laughs> to think that Fentumas started in, like, the last gasps of Imperial Europe, and then it, like, is at the end of it? Like, it's so weird to think in the grand scale of history. Yeah, you know, when you watch a lot of these things, and you see them in HD, or you see, like, real-life documentary-type footage, it's odd to think about all of the things that this was earlier than you know it was earlier mm-hmm. than the great depression it was earlier than world war ii and the holocaust and everything uh not not so much baggage on charlie chaplin's little mustache <laughs> at this point yeah it was just like a, a chic cool mustache at the time <laughs> yeah um it is kind of it's kind of cool to see especially with the european films too just like see kind of a glimpse of that time period too mm-hmm that's what I think the entire time I'm watching Phantomas. I'm just like looking at the houses and looking at the people just like existing. And I'm like, I can't even conceptualize a world where like the Holocaust hasn't happened or like, yeah. it just seems so like removed, like in a potentially like uh freeing way, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There was no bad stuff. in yeah. world except, except for Phantomas. Um Yeah. He's the first villain. <laughs> So yeah, one of the things that that happens here is that it's it's more of Phantomas uh, manipulating Lady Beltham. I feel so bad for her when I watch this. I know um, she's she's really like just being constantly manipulated and and abused by Phantomas, and and she really just like can't get out of it, no matter how hard she tries. Um, but basically, like he. She has moved on to be like what, like a rich countess or something like that. Um, yeah, like mm-hmm. ma- married into a new fortune, and then like she's living her happy life, and then Fantomas shows up and says, "Hey, throw a ball, uh, <laughs> throw a ball where people will 
donate to the uh, donate resources to help catch Phantomas, and then I will steal that money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a costume ball, and a couple people come dressed as Phantomas, which is, I guess, Genius. tasteful. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> Fandor, the heroic journalist, <laughs> decides to to come dressed up as Phantomas as a, as a trick. And then a police detective also shows up as Phantomas. And so there's a scene of of uh Lady Beltham sort of at at the door of the ball welcoming guests. Mm-hmm. And one Phantomas shows up and then a second Phantomas shows up and then a third Phantomas shows up. And even you can kind of see like people at the party are like, Whoa, hold on, like what's going on? <laughs> and but it's I thought it was interesting how uh, and and the intertitles make note of this of how she can kind of like sense which is the mm-hmm. real one. Uh, yeah. So she she you can see that she feels a little uneasy about fake Phantomasses being there. Uh, but then when the real one shows up, she's like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, Do you think they they've been intimate? Yes. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, I feel like that's pretty heavily implied. It's shown, like just pure hardcore porn in the middle of the serial. I think I think you got a different file tonight. <laughs> yeah, the unrated director's cut. <laughs> did um, you Did you guys look up all these actors? Because I get curious, like how long people lived and like what the like. There's not a lot of info on any of these people. I looked up the guy who plays Phantomas. He lived um, a long life. He died in his 90s, I think. Yeah, which surprised me. Fandor, Fandor died young. Fandor was like in 50-something when he died. Mm. And then Juve was in the 70s. It was like they were all all died like 20 years apart from one another. Mm. I mean, speaking of Juve, by the way, uh, he spends the beginning, like the first half of this episode in prison. Uh, <laughs> uh, basically, there are just rumors. There are rumors that Fantomas isn't real and that it's actually Juve. And yeah. Just on that suspicion, on those rumors that are printed in the newspaper, they're like, all right, off to prison with you, Juve. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, now, if, um, this was a, if this was a show today, that'd be a whole season exploring the psychology of, of Juve and seeing if Fantomas is like actually a construct in his head or something. Yeah. They hint at the idea, certainly. It's also funny that that exact plot point has been in like more recent like Sherlock Holmes adaptations. And the Hannibal show, and like that whole thing of like the detective, like people think that the villain is all in the, de- in the detective's head, right? Is very much a like recurring thing, um, in these types of stories. And yeah, it's 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 interesting because you know Phantomas is just mega savvy in all of these, uh, <laughs> uh, all of these works, yeah. and so Phantomas, when he's discovered partially at the party. Um, he gets a cut on his arm and, and he gets it treated by somebody at the party. He escapes and then, uh, he has, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, the, the prison guard, Nibe or, or mm-hmm. whatever, yeah. however you pronounce that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that is. Uh, he has Nibe come in and uh, come into Juve's cell and cut Juve on the arm where, Phantomas was uh, was cut so that uh, so that there would be more corroborating evidence that the Phantomas is Juve. Um, 
but luckily uh, the uh, cops kind of show up in Juve's cell while he is still drugged by Nube, and they realize that he's drugged, and that they say, okay, something hinky's going on here. Yeah. <laughs> then they eventually What, what catch... all French police say? Something, something, hink- something hinky's going on. <laughs> <laughs> something hinky is going on? Yeah, uh, maybe. Juve is in prison a lot in the fifth one, too. Uh, yeah. Juve is, is then cleared of having made up Fantomas, but this then almost immediately kidnapped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Juve doesn't have a good time in, in a lot of these later episodes. No, yeah. He's kind um, of sidetracked a bit for a lot more of Fandor. Yeah. Yeah, they go for the young hot one. <laughs> the young all spry these, one who dies all first. These, so all these new film them. serials. Always looking for the hot new actor. Always yeah. putting all the character actors of a certain age out to pasture. Uh, I will note, though, that when they wake Juve up in prison, it's more handy-smelling salts that people happen to have on yeah. them at all times. <laughs> they o- they always carry them around. Because there's a lot of chloroformin happening in the olden times, in old France. Yeah, it's just how people go to sleep sometimes. <laughs> um... And this one also ends with uh, a, a another false capture of Fantomas. Uh, as is the MO of the show, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> not, not my favorite one, but a pretty good one. <laughs> and once again, they're grabbing him by his arms. And I'm like, didn't you learn last time, yeah. you guys? Like, he's, you got, don't... he's got those fake arms. <laughs> but he doesn't, he doesn't use it this the time. one, too. What do they do in the fifth one? They also grab him by his arms again when they. Oh yeah, that's just their go-to move. Not yeah, invent handcuffs. I mean, come on. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, and in this one, the way that (laughs) the way that Fentimas gets out is that he leads them along a path as they're walking him from his mansion uh, out to the police station. He leads them along a path that has two conveniently placed holes alongside that they they slip and fall into and and (laughs) and he loses them Um, there's there's a scene like right before that like right before they catch him in this one however briefly um where phantomas is stealing the money that was uh that was gathered at the at the costume ball from uh lady beltham's house and this scene, I don't know, just it put Fantomas in such a different perspective for me because this entire time he's like got all these disguises and tricks and escapes, and this is just a scene of him like going through a drawer at his ex girlfriend's house and stealing her money. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, this guy is such a like, ugh, what a dick. <laughs> um, it's just like no, they're like no grand, you know thievery happening like he's just taking money from a drawer he's just a he's a scoundrel he's like a he's just a yeah. bad dude he's a user yeah. and an abuser <laughs> um and yeah it was it it's funny how like that the like mu- mundanity of it almost made it seem worse yeah. yeah he's not this like brilliant genius hannibal lecter type like he came off in the first couple episodes he's just kind of like a dick <laughs> yeah yeah um, and it, it kind of reminded me too of like the end of of uh, Die Hard, when sort of everything else stripped away from Hans Gruber, all of his plans. He's just like, no, 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 like I'm just here for money. Like, 
<laughs> it, it, he kind of reveals his sort of neediness, I guess, by the end of the movie. And that yeah. kind of uh, hmm. reminded me of it's that. It's a good a comparison. I've always thought of Hans Gruber as the Phantom Asa of the 80s. <laughs> uh, well, I guess that brings us to episode five, The False Magistrate. Mm. The um, False Magistrate. A lot of um, paperwork in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. I mean, he's having to pretend to be a, a law clerk of some type. Yeah, so. judge, they call him, but I don't know if that's just like an imprecise translation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he ends up having to sign a lot of paperwork. Definitely, he's like a he's like a notary, <laughs> like a notary public. <laughs> his grand his grand evil plan to impersonate a notary. Yeah, that's the finale of the season of the series series finale. That's the yeah yeah the big con to go out on is um, I'm a notary public. <laughs> the there's sort of a surprise early in this episode that we find out that Fantomas has actually been caught, but in Belgium. Yeah, where they're yeah. a bunch of pansies who have no strict capital punishment like France. Yeah, and so Juve is upset that Belgium is just going to imprison Fantomas and not execute him. Yeah, because he, so, he, he knows how cunning Fantomas is, yeah. so he's like, he's just going to break out anyway. Like, you can't... <laughs> so his his grand old plan is to break Fantomas out of prison, yeah, place him the, in prison, the law. <laughs> and then have him followed... S- back to France, and then caught in France so that he can be put to death. Amazing plan, Juve. Yeah. So, so, so No good. possible ways that that can go wrong, right? <laughs> um, however. However, Fantomas pretty much immediately loses his tail after escaping from prison. And then immediately after that, murders a judge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You'd think there wouldn't be... Uh, consequences to yeah letting letting this uh this murderer out on the loose <laughs> there is real quick i do want to mention the the lighting in Fantomas's cell when they show him in prison is probably the best in the series hmm. um some of the best lighting i think we've seen in anything this far because it's it's light coming through the bars of the cell and projecting mm-hmm. the the shadow of the bars on the wall it's it's just great. That's that that kind of noiry lighting, I suppose. Yeah. So when Fantomas kills this judge, he realizes what what a good position this could put him in, and so he assumes this man's identity and all the banalities of his life. Yeah, including all the paperwork, and the bulk of this episode is him using his power as a judge to try and manipulate all of the situations around Fantomas's realness and Fantomas's arrested status and uh, to his advantage and also uh, to pull off all sorts of petty crimes as well. <laughs> Fantomas does white collar crime more than more this episode. Like <laughs> impersonating a clerk and like using paperwork to beat the system. <laughs> Yeah, there's. I'm trying to remember what the setup is for it. He's sort of uh, recruits um, a couple of kind of low level criminals. Yeah, by following them to their hideout in the train yard. That is another way he's different than um, other criminal genius characters. Is he? He always has a posse. Like he, he rarely does mm-hmm. stuff just solo through his sheer brilliance. He's usually like um, 
extorting people or coercing people into being his like, little army. Including these people who it seems like they just respect Fantumas so much that they just go <laughs> along with being his underlings. Yeah. Which doesn't work out great for them. No. No. Um, there is uh, maybe my favorite scene. Not my favorite scene in the whole show, but definitely my favorite scene of the episode is the the clock tower. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, where uh, the one of the criminals has stashed a box of jewels um, up inside uh, the like bell. bell. Yeah. 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 Um, it's not a clock tower, a bell tower. Um, and so they have to go to retrieve it. And uh, the... Phantomas holds the ladder as the criminal climbs up the ladder to get to the top of this uh, thing. And there's there's two shots in this that are really really stand out. One is yeah. there's like almost like a vertical shot, like a like a pillar boxed mm-hmm. shot of the whole tower, and you yeah. see them standing tiny at the bottom, and the, the yeah. bell is at the top. It feels like a cross section almost. Like it does. A... It also, it's like vertical video. Yeah, which made me think. Does this make Phantomas the first Quibi? Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, <laughs> Way too long to be a Quibi. This no, just that scene is a Quibi. Yeah, yeah, it probably is. Um, and then there's a a boom shot, which is the camera instead of tilting up, physically moving up as it follows the the guy climbing up the ladder the whole mm-hmm. way up, mm-hmm. which is used to great effect, um, just to kind of show like how how much ladder this guy is going through. Um, and it's the first time I think we've seen uh, a camera move quite like this one. We've seen similar stuff in some some early, uh, uh, whatchamacallums, documentaries and uh, actuality films. Well, there's um, there was the camera movement in A Trip to Jupiter, which was kind of mm-hmm. like that. And yeah. then there was also the Fernand Zeka one with the police, the police chase movie mm-hmm. uh, that had the camera moving up as they climbed up the side of a, a house, if I remember correctly. Yeah, this is still definitely an early usage. Um, yeah, a lot of a uh, lot of camera movement breakouts this year, in terms of it kind of mm-hmm. being more of a thing. Um, so yeah, that scene was great. Well. The conclusion of that scene is great too. I mean, not to yeah. just like uh, uh, only dig into the the bloody and disgusting, but uh, no, that's also part of what makes the scene so good. <laughs> it, it makes up for all the the paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the big set piece that for the series finale. Like they blow it, their budget off. It is mm-hmm. definitely like a very grim set piece for for <laughs> for, a, for, a, for a grim series. Um, is so when Phantomas. Uh, uh, is helping this guy with the ladder at uh, get to the thing stashed inside of the bell. Um, he removes the ladder, so his his crony once once the crony's thrown the the stash down, he removes the ladder, and then the crony is stuck up there holding on to the little I don't know what you call it the little like uvula of the bell, you know, <laughs> um, the tonsils of the bell. Yeah, um, and so he's just there for like a day or something like that holding yeah. on not like not able to sleep not able to rest because he is stuck inside of a bell a bell tower well he's he's sort of tied, feet tied himself to it oh so is he's he? like tied up there um 
And the next day, there is a, uh, there's a funeral for, um, some, a, another person that Fantomas has killed in the episode. <laughs> and, uh, Fantomas appears at the funeral as a, uh, as the, the magistrate. Um, and they ring the bell for the funeral. And in, in the, <laughs> in the intertitles, it says, as the funeral commences, pearls, diamonds, rubies, and blood rain down on the guests. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> and there's a shot of the bell ringing, and you see, like, this guy's not quite lifeless body, like, yeah. banging on the sides of the bell yeah. as it's being rung. That was um, awesome. <laughs> we, f- we find out through intertitles that he died, like, the next day. Ugh. After after just yelling, Phantomas! Phantomas! <laughs> um there's a great intertitle too when Phantomas kicks the the ladder away and it just says swindled <laughs> <laughs> uh by the way that part of a bell is called a clapper oh okay, okay. makes sense the thing that claps mm-hmm. <laughs> um oh. so overall what do you what what elements of um television or um the evolution of cinema did you see by watching a serial like this um i mean one thing is just a kind of reminder of how old this sort of form of like serialized like filmmaking has been around for like people are very quick to sort of point out how like oh like the the marvel movies are like doing a crazy new thing and it like it kind of feels like that but it also like not really yeah um they're repurposing an old thing yeah i mean the the idea of like stringing separate films together to tell a, a greater story or even to have like characters cross over between them is is pretty old yeah um and also it's it's cool to see it done this well at yeah. this early point too. Yeah. I think like one thing from it's got good cliffhangers and and such. Yeah, I think one thing that I noticed in in regard to its similarities to television is that it is uh more serialized than most television had been up until the post HBO post lost mm-hmm. era. Um, yeah. It ha- it carries yeah. a lot more over from episode to episode than you would see in TV from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right, yeah. You can, um, there's more in common with Fantumas with like uh, girls or insecure than there is with like uh, Bonanza, you know? <laughs> yeah, all things that I would associate with Fantumas anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah te- television is way more passive for many decades it's just like wh- you watch what's on when it's on you know vcrs don't record stuff until the 70s and 80s 90s so you're just like every first episode is can be watched the same as the last episode and uh Fantumas is there's a little bit of that where you potentially could watch the fifth episode and like not have seen the previous ones because you they're chasing a guy named Fantumas. you could just figure that out but You've yeah. met the characters already, and you like have an interest because of the previous episodes. Like it, it builds upon itself, but it's not completely alienating because there were people who would just go to the theater and not be able to see the other four parts, right? Mm-hmm. I think that was sort of the initial like business appeal of a serial 
is that it brings people back to the theater over and over again. It turns, it's effectively appointment television, but yeah. for whenever mm-hmm. the next installment comes out. Right. Pre, pre-radio, pre-television. It's, it's the, the very first appointment viewing. Um, and I guess eventually they like movies just change that to just doing sequels. Right. Like that's how they crack right. the code. Like serials, just franchises, franchises. Yeah. Yeah. The Thin Man, Charlie Chan, those are the ones probably coming up in your in your docket. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that kind of uh how like serialization changes um and sort of eventually will evolve into T V, I guess in like the fifties. Mm-hmm. Um Which also yeah, evolved from is... radio too, right? Yeah. True, true. Mm, the shadow. Mm. Lot, lot of the shadow in Phantomas. They're, they're both pulp, pulp properties, yeah. and, and uh, you know, Glenn, that like a lot of pulp stuff, they'll be like the posse, they'll be like a crew, it'll be like your character, and then like twelve people working in their network. Yeah. The Phantomas. shadows agents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Doc Savage has that. Um, they all have that. Phantomas has elements of that where he has like they're less ident- identifiable outside of the women he. Um, <laughs> emotionally abuses but the uh he doesn't have like a guy who's like i'm phantomas's right hand man i'm gonna do whatever yeah. you want yeah. Phantomas. <laughs> i was reading up on uh sort of the where phantomas went after this um there were 32 original phantomas novels uh 43 if you count they were like there was kind of a revival by one of the co-authors um, which lasted until 1965. Oh my god, what were they, a thousand years old? Probably. <laughs> um, Weren't the bulk, and, I think the bulk of them were written in just a couple years, right? Yeah, yeah. The original 32 were written in like a very short span of time, and then there were 43 more after that, written by oh one of the god. co-authors. Well, when you do one book one year, you can yeah. talk about all the fancy we'll, Nazis. We'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are some... some Plot stuff that I would have loved to seen, loved to have seen uh, uh, Louis Viad adapt. Like in the books, Fantomas has a stepdaughter named uh, Helene who falls in love with Fandor and eventually teams up with him and Juve oh, really? against Fantomas. Wow, um, okay. There was a 20 part serial made in, the, in 1920, made uh, in the US, but it is unfortunately lost. Really? Like so I was going to say we could have talked about that in 1920. Yeah, but sadly. There are some, some uh, I think, French Fantomas movies from the 1960s. Yeah. Which well, are kind of they... getting into more of the like 60s or... spy genre. I, I watched a clip from one of them, and it does have that very 60, 60s spy look to it. Mm. It looks James Bondy in a way. Um, but also Fantomas has like a blue face. I was going like, to say, does he like... have, like, a paper mache face or, like, a... Maybe that's what it was, what? yeah. I think like, it's, like, like um... he's got no face. <laughs> I think it's ceramic or something. He, he has sort of, like, a ceramic... It's where the, the Marvel character Phantom X gets some of his look. It's, like, uh... you just kind of covered the... And Diabolic, the Italian version, his is black. But they he gets kind of, like, a, a look in that 60s one. I, I think that right. Diabolic sort of replaces... Fantomas in the in some Euro culture after a certain point because I think there's a mm-hmm. diabolic movie that came out like last year from Italy. Oh wow! Hmm. Got to bring Fantomas back. 
Yeah. They br- they they brung Lupin back. They brung yeah. Diabolic back. There's got to be a Fantomas revival. We should do Fant- Fantomas versus Lupin Dawn of Justice. Yes, and they both have to steal something. Yeah, but Fantomas is like a, a piece of shit about it and like kills 10 people and like yeah. <laughs> he's just a, like a mutilated snake in somebody's car. And Lupin <laughs> is like, oh, my, my, no, I don't, don't do that. Like, you know, like offended by his lack of gentleman qualities. Yeah, that would be great. Hmm. And the post credit gotta... scene is Sherlock Holmes comes in. <laughs> he's like, oh, you Frenchman. I would, I would watch the hell out of that. Nobody, French Net, French Netflix, get on, get on. Nobody, nobody steal that. We're making, we're making that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that uh, that about wraps it up for the cereal bowl, and it wraps um, it up for Marco too, huh? That's a series wrap on Marco. <laughs> Everybody clap. It's a series wrap on Marco. Uh, yeah, next for so the cereal bowl is is intended to be an occasional uh, feature of the podcast <laughs> because we can't be watching a bunch of serials yeah. and entire effectively entire television series for uh for each episode. Yeah. We're already um, watching like eight movies a week for this show. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um uh but next next week it will come back in the form of Louis Fouillade's The Vampires, which is another oh. crime drama. Uh but me and Glenn have a, a long task ahead of us oh my God. of watching those like 600 minutes of, of oh vampires footage. I mean, <laughs> that all came out one year. Uh, it was across two years, like Phantom Us, but it was 10 episodes and they're longer. Two yeah. years, two weeks. <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, that's what I should have called the podcast given how slow I am <laughs> at, at producing it. That's, your, <laughs> that's a recap podcast of your podcast. Like, yeah. Your fans uh, made two two weeks, two years. <laughs> uh, well, thanks for appearing on this episode, Marco. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find you? Yes, you can all find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Fleetwood Marco, like the British band Fleetwood Mac, but Marco, all one word. And if you want to read anything I've written, you could go on Story Screen Beacon, and you'll just search my name. Search Marco Rumo on the Google.com. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Marco. Thank you. On to our next segment. Yes. Uh, one week, one reel, which we don't have a jingle for yet, do we? We don't. Yeah, that's the only thing we don't have a jingle for. Well, I don't know. What should it just be like a a film reel kind of going stock sound effect? Or I, I don't yeah, really works. know. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Uh, this was the year of Chaplin, really. Indeed. Um, uh, this was Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin signed up to work at Max Sennett's Keystone Studios in December of last year, and he made his first film in January. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just became enormously popular. Um, and I can see why. Um, yeah, his screen presence is so like so good you know yeah. it's it's captivating he he steals every scene that he's in which i guess is why he is who he is yeah it it is it was funny to see especially his first film in which he is not sort of like in his iconic garb or character really it's just like the second he shows up it's like oh okay this yeah. guy is very good at what he does yeah yeah um yeah it's it's wild kind of how 
you know, we've been watching a lot of a lot of silent comedy shorts for the last year, yes. actual year of time. Oh boy! <laughs> and uh, yeah, like the second Charlie Chaplin shows up, it's like, oh, oh, damn. Okay, this guy's really, really pushing it. Yeah, for sure. And and actually, you know, we watched a, a spread of different shorts across this year of him working at Keystone, and I could see him getting. You know, he starts off really good at what he's doing, and by the end of the year, his um he he's amazing. You know, mm-hmm. he's he really um just the way that he moves is really interesting to watch. So I was thinking about this in how due to the limitations of film at that time, right? There was a lot of characterization that could not be done for for the people on the screen. They didn't do a lot of close-ups, so you couldn't do a huge amount of subtle emoting and you couldn't hear them speak or they couldn't speak too much, so you couldn't get to their their inner who they are based on that. And I think what Charlie Chaplin realized is that to, to read a character in a visual way, everything about what kind of character they are can be shown visually. And I think that is what makes him, is part of what makes him so magnetic, is that everything that he is, you're seeing in the way that he moves. Yeah. Um, he's definitely, I think, someone that definitely over the course of this first year of his movies kind of understood like the difference between film acting and stage acting it seems just because there there he's is doing a lot of subtle things uh with his facial expressions and such that probably wouldn't read in like a vaudeville act yeah um but works great on screen yeah um, well, so his first one was called Making a Living, which, uh, the first one that, the first short that he appeared in. Yeah. Like we were saying, just like he, the second he kind of appears on screen, he kind of sticks out from other kind of comedic actors from this time. I think especially a lot of like male actors tend to have kind of more, uh, I don't know, traditionally handsome, like wide shoulders and like square jaw and such Mm -hmm. and charlie chaplin has like very narrow shoulders and like kind of a big head for his body (laughs) he's just like he's just he's like proportioned perfectly for comedy and he knows how to use that for the best effect like he knows how to like hold his body in a way that is inherently funny he like walks around like a marionette yeah, he um, moves so weird. <laughs> he's just like he's a living cartoon. Yes. Um you can definitely see I think a lot of the like Max Linder influence. Yeah. But Chaplin I think is pushing it further. Like he's going more cartoonish with it. Yeah, definitely. I I wrote um, down Max Linder dialed up to 11 basically. Yeah. Uh this was I think definitely the best Keystone film that I had seen up till that point. Mm. Um it's very just kind of like throw everything at the wall kind of kind of thing. It seems like um, a new a new style of comedy that they're going for in this year. Uh where some of their previous comedies were a bit more um I don't know, situational and and story based. Like pretty much everything that we've seen at least out of these Chaplin movies 
is very based on physical comedy and slapstick, mm-hmm. um, which was less of a feature in their previous comedies. Yeah. Um, in this one, Charlie Chaplin plays a swindler, which I believe is how he is credited in the credits. Um, and it's kind of just him going around causing causing mischief and mayhem, trying yeah. to trying to make a living by doing sort of different different cons on people he uh he tries to get a job as at a newspaper as a journalist he uh he like pickpockets people um there's a sort of big set piece where a car drives off a, a a hill and crashes in a fiery crash i was, was kind of surprised fire? i don't think there was fire but i it, it felt like fire. there was but like um I was kind of surprised that they were willing to wreck a whole car for, for just one short film, you know? Yeah, and it's, like, not... This isn't, like, a car stunt-based story. It's, like, one scene where there happens to be a car crash, and it's, like, this huge, yeah. most overblown car crash possible. Um, I think that kind of exemplifies the sort of Keystone style, though, is sort of, like more of everything it's like every everything is dialed up to everything everything is the most it can possibly be at every moment very zany yeah um to like to the point where it often risks putting too much on screen at once i think like sometimes there's almost so much going on that it's like all right particularly in this one i think um i have written down the gags start coming and they don't stop coming Um, some, some behind the scenes info that I have gleaned from mostly Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried, I tried to, to back it up where I could, um, uh, Chaplin and the, the director Henry Lerman did not get along on this film and both kind of accused each other of being unprofessional. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, Lerman said that uh, Chaplin started giving suggestions uh, for the plot, which was sort of non-existent, uh, which uh, Lerman did not appreciate. Um, <laughs> but uh, they they went on to make more movies together. So, although I feel like there's almost we can get into those in a minute. Um, a contemporary review from uh, a magazine at the time, the Moving Picture World, said it is. It is so full of action that it is indescribable. <laughs> it's it's very hard to like summarize this one because it's so much happens. Yeah, it's th- and this one is only one reel, as yes. per the title of the segment. Yeah, it's pretty short, and it's yeah the the car crash is like one tiny scene of this whole thing. Um. Well, I guess so. This is pre the tramp. Which mm-hmm. is his signature character. Um, and I guess what we can talk about next is Mabel's Strange Predicament, mm-hmm. which is the first movie that they filmed with his tramp character, though it wasn't yeah. the first to come out. I think it was the second to come out. Yeah, just a couple of days later. Um, this one's directed by Mabel Normand. Mm-hmm. Uh, not her first directing credit. She also started directing stuff this year, but I couldn't find anything. Did she start like, this year? Yeah, there was okay. I, either this year or or nineteen thirteen. 
Mm-hmm. But I, I looked to try to see if I could find her her debut short, and I couldn't find it anywhere. So mm-hmm. it might it might not exist anymore. I, I don't know. Um, it's cool that she's directing a lot of her own stuff, as far as what I saw in you know her her repertoire of what she has directed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. And and we'll go on to do like I know just from general like old film history that Mabel Norman was sort of like a v- very much a sort of like self-starting uh actor hmm. like she she did a lot of like her like producing and directing stuff um which I don't know how unusual that was for the time for like an actor to be like I'm directing this one yeah, well, uh, in in one of the later films that we're going to talk about, uh, Charlie Chaplin did that himself. Yeah, uh, seems like the roles in the studio system at the time were a lot more flexible. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, I think I kind of get the sense that Keystone was just the sort of like amalgamation of different people that were just sort of like, ah, we're making movies. Yeah, <laughs> you do this, like just they're just throwing stuff out. Um. Uh, this one was notable to me in that, like, we're we're used to seeing Charlie Chaplin as his sort of signature character, the Tramp, mm-hmm. very recognizable, and he's usually this sort of like lovable, lovable scamp, you know? Yeah, he's usually like he causes mischief, but it's like we love him, you know? Yeah, he's basically the villain in this one. Yeah, like and- he's he's just a drunken asshole in this one. <laughs> yeah, and uh- that's like that's the intent. Like he's the antagonist to Mabel Norman. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's funny, I, 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 I made sure to watch this before I watched some of the other movies with uh, the tramp in them. Um, and it made me, and, and I also read that in the, the 1914 version of Charlie Chaplin's tramp is kind of different from the 1915 version, mm-hmm. where the, the 1915 tramp is a lot more lovable, a lot less violent, you know, um, <laughs> Not seemed, grabbing dogs' tails. Yeah, I, I I get the sense that a lot of this character coming out of of this this specific short, that this character is informed by the drunken, the surly drunken person, uh, uh, rather than being like he's the tramp, he's a lovable guy. It's yeah. like he is a disheveled drunk guy who is funny. But he is falling yeah. over all the time and making weird faces because he's drunk, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, the villain of Suspense from from last year yeah. is credited as the Tramp. Right. So, like, the Tramp is kind of an, like a, an archetype in these early American films as, mm. like, this kind of scary, <laughs> drunken guy who right. just shows up and, like, <laughs> scares people. Which is what Charlie Chaplin does in this. He just does it in a much more slapsticky, amusing sort of way. Yeah, and and speaking to the also to the beginning of the Tramp, uh, there's this quote from Charlie Chaplin that floats around a lot of of how he came up with the kind of distinctive way that he dresses because um, he was called to play this drunkard asshole character in the um, in the episode in the in the the short. He says. Uh, I was hurriedly told to put on a funny makeup. This time, I went to the wardrobe and I got a pair of baggy pants, a tight coat, a small derby hat, and a large pair of shoes. I wanted the clothes to be a mass of contradictions, knowing pictorially the figure would be vividly outlined on the screen. 
To add a comic touch, I wore a small mustache, which would not hide my expression. Uh, yeah. And then apparently, uh, a lot of the people like Max Sennett, uh, dug the look mm. and thought that it was this kind of mishmash of, of drifter hobo attire was, was appropriate. <laughs> it's funny. It makes so much sense when he breaks it down like that, but yeah. because it's, it's now like this iconic thing, it's like, ah, oh, I just like baggy pants. That's funny. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, this was originally, this was a, a, a costume and it was a, character that was originally just meant to be this kind of disheveled drifter and who eventually just became so popular due to Chaplin's like magnetic acting mm-hmm. um that he's kind of developed it i guess a bit more and softened some of the edges maybe yeah um his uh i guess the uh the first screen appearance of the tramp which is the first one released um, was Kid Auto Races at Venice, mm-hmm. also directed by Henry Lerman. Um, which is kind of a mockumentary. Do do does this? Do you think that this was not like a fully staged event? Like this was a uh this this was him goofing around at an actual car race. I mean, it's I yes and no. Uh-huh. Like. I kind of think this was a thing that existed already. Yeah. That they that they did. It is very staged because he's like dodging out of the way of, of different uh, rolly cars. Yeah. Um, so I don't think they just showed up to an actual race and were just like, go, go, go get in the way of the cars. <laughs> um, I mean, there's a ton of people in the background that were all just kind of watching the events happen. Yeah, um, I I do think considering how many of the the crowd people look directly at the camera, I think a lot of them are just people there. <laughs> so I think it's it's sort of somewhere somewhere in between. Yeah, I'm not really sure how they actually went about shooting it, but it's sort of presented as a film about these these kid auto races of like cars being pushed down a big ramp yeah. and then racing like roller derbies basically. But um, then Charlie Chaplin in his tramp getup keeps just mugging for the camera. Yeah, literally. I mean, this is this was the one that made me realize that how informed uh, the the character of the tramp is by a drunk person, by the idea mm-hmm. of a drunk person, because he's just kind of stumbling back and forth. And there's somebody who's trying to shoot a movie of this event, and he keeps it is walking the in front of director. the camera. It's, oh, is it? It's Henry Lerman, yeah. And <laughs> so th- this this film, I was like, is this Henry Lerman kind of like trying to get back at Chaplin or like trying to show what... Is this like a reflection of their actual working relationship of like... <laughs> Lerman's yeah. trying to shoot something, and Charlie Chaplin is just like, no, I want to be in the front of the camera. And he's right. like, get out of here. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, he, he keeps absentmindedly or non-absentmindedly uh, walking in front of the camera, and the director just like pushes him onto the ground. It's like, get out of here, get out of here. And he keeps like wandering either in front of the camera or in front of the cars. And this is like um this is like a, a half reel feature. It's like six or seven minutes yeah. long. And the entire thing is basically bouncing back and forth between him being in front of the camera and getting pushed down and him being in front of the cars and almost getting hit and then yeah. just <laughs> repeat. <laughs> um, Charlie Chaplin falls down 
like like no one else. Yeah, already, already. He does he does a a great pratfall. Just throws <laughs> his legs up. It's mm-hmm. it's always funny. Is the thing. It's super it happens, cartoonish. Yeah, it happens like twenty times in just this like five minute short. Yeah, <laughs> the short is basically nothing but him falling down. And yeah, it's just it's it's flawless. <laughs> um, and then yeah, only uh, only four months after his debut film, he was already directing his own shorts. Yeah, starting with Caught in the Rain. Uh, this is one that, uh, you know, I guess Chaplin was begging Max Sennett to allow him to uh, film film the direct one of his own movies for a while, and Sennett didn't really believe in him. He's like 24 years old and new at the studio, like less than six months, um, and so Chaplin basically told him, like, I'll I'll pay you fifteen hundred dollars if this film doesn't work, uh, which is thirty eight thousand. Or, or about forty thousand dollars in today's dollars. <laughs> um, he's like, I'll pay you fifteen hundred. Actually, he's British. He's like, I'll pay you fifteen hundred dollars if my film is unsuccessful. <laughs> um, and yeah, this one, this one feels like a more uh, a more evolved version of the Tramp. For, I guess like a little a little more than just drunk. Um, mm-hmm. he's, he's got like a bit more of a character to him. Um, uh, sort of like what we'll see in, he's not playing the tramp, but his, his physical stylings have evolved a bit, uh, toward what we'll see toward the end of the year with, uh, Tilly's punctured romance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny cause first of all, I ended up watching this unintentionally on Charlie Chaplin's birthday. So that's fun. <laughs> Um, and one thing I noticed about this one is like, for, for his first film, I feel like this isn't the, the, the like film language of it is not very complex. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Not as like, I'm not saying that like as a put down, but it's That's just like, oh, okay. Like there's yeah. not a lot, there's not a lot of comedy being done with the the with the, the editing camera. or the camera or anything it's yeah. it's mostly just like shots of charlie chaplin doing funny shit um but that's the thing 10 years 10 years ago 1904 this film would have been like a breakthrough in like how it was shot and cut together yeah um and how it's like this is kind of just the norm like charlie chaplin just kind of not really knowing what he's doing just like uh i'll direct one I mean, I think it speaks to people's knowledge of how film works being built on the films that they're seeing around them. Yeah. Um, like, you know, it took, uh, it took, uh, uh, it, it took early filmmakers a long time to figure out something like cross cutting. Mm-hmm. But I think that a kid who has never made a movie before, but has watched movies or has watched modern films would cross cut without thinking about it would make a more technically competent film Mm -hmm. than what a lot of people did in the early days. Um, So I guess Chaplin, you know, just being surrounded by more advanced film language there uh, could do that. There is a, there is a term for this. I think it's like cumulative intelligence or Mm, interesting. Something like that where it's like every generation gets smarter just 
on the basis of having the previous generation did all the hard work to learn something. And then there's like, Oh, okay. We know that now. Right. Right. Um, and I think this short is kind of a good example of that in sort of filmmaking history. Yeah. Um, the only other short that I watched mm-hmm. was, uh, not a Charlie Chaplin film. No, but, a, another Windsor McKay animation showcase. Yes. His, His most, most famous. famous. Yep. Yeah. Jinx. <laughs> By Miko. Uh, Gertie the Dinosaur. Yeah. Which I, I had seen already. Yeah, me too. I saw this in an animation class. Uh, I probably did as well. <laughs> this is this is a very famous one, I think. Yeah. Um, um, it's fun. Yeah. Uh, this one was originally a vaudeville act. Um, before it was a, 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 a film version. Mm. Um, and, uh, so it was just built out of this animation that Windsor McKay spent about half a year making of a dinosaur doing various tricks and such as raising one leg or the other leg or, uh, you know, taking a bow, that kind of thing. Um, and so this, the original intention of this was to be a kind of call-and-response film where Windsor McKay would stand on stage and then say, Hey, Gertie, lift up your left leg for me. And then the, and then the animated dinosaur would lift up its leg and the audience would ooh and ah. <laughs> ooh, ah. Um, yeah, this, the, the film version of it kind of keeps a similar framing device to a lot of the other animated shorts that we've been watching of like a bunch of wealth, a, a wealthy dinner of tuxedos and cigars gathers and is like, Windsor McKay, like show us a trick. And he's like, I will draw a thousand drawings of a dinosaur. And they're like, we'll see. And then he does it. And they're like, wow. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> he's so smart. Yeah. Um, a lot of the very self-aggrandizing Windsor McKay Very. It's uh, funny because this one, for whatever reason, it really stuck out to me. It's like, this is just Windsor McKay, like, patting himself on the back. <laughs> um, Look at me. I can make a dinosaur move. Yeah. Uh, I do like how much personality comes through the animation of Gertie. Yeah. Um, I have it written down, Gertie is a big dog, which I think is... Kind of gets to the. <laughs> yeah, kind of acts like true. a big dog. That's true. Um, it's funny. It's like it's definitely more uh, character in the animation than we've seen in pretty much anything so far. Uh, uh, but because it's using this technique of, or because it doesn't want Gertie to look dead, right? It's not having Gertie like ever stand still. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, at all moments where Gertie is supposed to just be kind of idle, uh, she's kind of just bobbing back and forth from one key pose to another key pose. Um, and it's to a degree that it's kind of like weird and distracting. Uh, and it almost <laughs> makes her seem like a bit more of an automaton than if she had just like stood still, you know? <laughs> Right, yeah, because it's like these repetitive motions as opposed to just yeah standing. Yeah. And this was the first keyframe-based animation, which 
hmm. uh, which m- makes that the case, right? He he drew those key poses and then animated between them and then looped the animation over and over again. Um, so mm. he didn't have to redraw all of that. Um, by the way, the reason why this is a film version and not not on the stage anymore is because uh, he worked at the New York Herald, which was owned by William Randolph Hearst. And Hearst was like, Windsor McKay, you're touring around the country and not drawing things for my newspaper. Get back to New York. <laughs> like you're not allowed to you're not allowed to perform in vaudeville anymore. And in fact, everyone who works for me from now on is going to have to sound in their contract that they can't work in vaudeville. Oh my god. He got so mad that like um that that uh, uh, Windsor McKay was going on tour doing the stage show with Gertie the Dinosaur that, that he said, you can't do that. Come back to New York. And so they made a film version that had that framing device around it hmm. with the same sort of call and response like, hey, Gertie, do this. Hey, Gertie, do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then released it to theaters uh, because uh, uh, in, in Windsor McKay's new contract he was not allowed to do vaudeville performances outside of the greater new york area <laughs> oh my god Oof. um i mean i think i were there any other shorts you want to talk about i guess not i think uh i think it's time for our final segment our feature presentation and now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation I I have to say I I listened to just that intro thing on the mm-hmm. last episode like thirty times. It makes me so happy. <laughs> you, there were all all the Indiana Jones movies had that intro on the VHS tape. Mm-hmm. I think Mission Impossible did. I I got a lot of that that sound is like burned into my memory. I wasn't so. sure which one to use because there were a lot on YouTube, but I'm yeah. glad you oriented me toward that one. Yeah. I have like a Pavlovian joy response when I hear that. that <laughs> and now that's part music. of our podcast. Yeah, it's good. Now it's the feature presentation. Uh, well, to give us a little bit of a buffer be- between waxing poetic about Charlie Chaplin and more Charlie Chaplin, would you like to uh, f- have our first feature presentation be Cabaria? Sure. Oh, Cabaria. That makes more sense than how I was saying it in my head. How were you saying it? Cabiria. Cabiria. I don't know. We'll have to ask an Italian. Cabiria sounds more like an Italian name, which is what it is. Yes. Cabiria sounds like a far off island uh, <laughs> where mysteries. The happen. Isle of, Cabir- of Cabiria, where yeah. they do sacrifices to Moloch. Oh. <laughs> this movie is pretty wild. Yeah. Um, this is sort of the, 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 the ultimate example of the pre-war italian epic yes this is the the height of it it peaked with this movie um and it's definitely more interesting than the previous ones yeah this is the longest one but also easily the best one yeah this is Um, by giovanni pastrone by the way who i'm not going to call giovanni pastrami anymore (laughs) um (laughs) for Um, italo film um he uh he previously co-directed what was my favorite Italian epic up to this point, The Fall of Troy, in 1911. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I saw that. And I was like, oh, okay, this one's going to be, this one might be good. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. It was. And it was, I mean, uh, just from a technical standpoint, like uh, this, one of the things that's most notable about Caparilla is that it uh, has a lot of moving cameras. Like yeah. uh, the camera kind of drifts around scenes, sometimes aimlessly, uh, sometimes with a purpose of following the action from one place to another. Uh, but honestly, even when the drifting camera isn't really doing anything, it makes the scenes feel so much more alive. And it's it's not even... I feel like drifting gives kind of the wrong impression. It's more like slow, just like slow, like side to side or like moving in towards... Yeah, pushing towards, in, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's like these kind of subtle camera movements that are so commonplace now as just sort of like, ah, you're covering a scene, just like, ah, to have, you know, camera like the little move yeah um and for 1914 it feels super groundbreaking yeah i mean everything is so locked off until this point and yeah. we've seen cameras move as much as 10 years ago yeah. um but uh it almost feels like uh pastrone is integrating a moving camera into his style mm-hmm. an already extant technique and and making it part of his style in the way that dw griffith took an already excellent technique of cross-cutting and made it part of his yeah. signature style yeah that actually i think is a pretty a pretty spot-on comparison um i know we have not yet watched any of dw griffith's like big epics but um supposedly a lot of the things that he later got credit for inventing in those are actually just things from Kabiria. <laughs> it's um yeah, I've seen in a lot of places that that Griffith took a lot of inspiration from this movie. Yeah. Um which I guess we'll see. Another big um, name that's attached to this is that some of the effects were done by Segundo de Chamon. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. He was involved awesome. on on the effects of this movie, which uh which is pretty great. Love to, love to see love to see Chamon out there. Yeah, yeah. um uh yeah i mean the the i guess the the very broad strokes plot of of this film is it follows uh, a girl named kabiria who lives in rome who is thought she's the daughter of some kind of nobles nobles and then mount etna erupts and destroys the the place she's living in um and that's like the first scene almost it's like oh we're like introduced to like a couple of the characters and they're like having a nice day and then boom volcano eruption yeah very bombastic and uh uh sort of well done like miniature volcano uh that they superimpose they they have a a very detailed miniature volcano that's taking up a lot of space and then they they superimpose a bunch of people very small in the foreground uh, and put them in the scene, which is really, really good. Yeah, they do that technique a lot in this, where they'll have uh, a miniature shot being most of the screen, and then usually in the foreground, they'll have a live act- some live-action footage superposed over it yeah. on a set or, or on location. Um, but even scale. that live-action footage is so big... That it then gives so much. It gives all. It gives that sense of scale to the miniatures 
in the background. Yeah. It's it works really well. Yeah. Um and so then uh she is saved from the eruption by her uh her nurse, I guess, her her caretaker. Yeah. Um but then they are immediately kidnapped by pirates and taken to uh the nation nation this this is getting into like a lot of you know western civ stuff that i really am not super aware of same um but yeah something they go to carthage carthage yeah carthage and and um, rome i suppose yeah and so there's a lot of this movie kind of functions as like a war movie between the the uh i forget what war it is some of the p it's not Punic? the penal wars. It's Punic pu- wars, I think. Yeah. Something like that. I really don't um, know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we're a film history podcast, not a history podcast, right? You want your yeah. your old-timey, real old-timey history, you have to go somewhere else. Yeah. Take it to the news segment of the year 400. Yeah. Ne- negative <laughs> 400, even. I don't know. Um, And so a lot of the rest of the movie follows these two... Roman spies who are sent to Carthage, uh, not really to get her back specifically, but that is and ends up kind of kind of being their main, um, their main goal. And the movie takes place over, I don't know, ten years, ten plus years, something like that. It yeah. really tells a very sprawling when, yarn. At the beginning, Cabrera's a, a little girl, and then uh, toward the end of the movie, she's like an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it does not, it does not skimp on the, the action. It's pretty action packed. Yeah. Yeah, for Um, sure. There are some just massive sets and set pieces in this. Yeah. I mean, the most famous and most notable of which being the, the Moloch sacrifice scene. I guess we should zoom in on that, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I could talk about this whole, this whole episode just on that scene. I think it's so... It's so wild and cool. So the the Moloch sequence is uh, after Cabaret has been captured. There are these kind of occultist, um, <laughs> occultist <laughs> Italian people who are trying to sacrifice like something like a hundred children to the to the god Moloch. Um, and there's there's a very big, uh, uh, an enormously practically built temple uh that that has this you know, kind of scary creature outside and yeah it's like the the temple steps are going up into its mouth yeah uh and and you see like hundreds of people kind of pouring in the gate for this enormous human sacrifice event um and uh and then you see the inside and there's like another statue and there's there's fire and brimstone and and uh and, was there brimstone i don't know there it's was just, fire. There was fire. Yeah. <laughs> where, you know, what they say, where there's fire, there's brimstone, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then they have this big statue that the chest opens up on the statue, and there's like a fire inside of the statue. And so they're just taking children and throwing them inside of this chest cavity of, of, uh, of Moloch. <laughs> right. Which, there couldn't have been real fire inside that statue, huh? Because they are throwing not. real children into it. <laughs> it's real children, real statue, fake fire. 
I <laughs> I hope so. What what I was I yeah I was trying to think of the mechanism there too. Like what I wonder is like maybe it was like because uh, the way that it op- it closes it they kind of slide in and maybe they just like slide straight down uh, ah, and then the fire just... is behind them like at maybe. a distance. Um, but yeah. Hopefully no children were harmed in the making of this film. No yeah. no children were human sacrificed in the making of this film. <laughs> um and so yeah, there's there's this whole thing where Cabaret is uh is 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 taken from from the the this group of children and taken to the temple and you're like, oh no, oh no, is she gonna be in the thrown in the fire statue? Um, and then sort of our, the, the, the two Roman spies, I guess, find out about, about this, that Cabaria is, is about to be sacrificed. Yeah. The two spies are, uh, Fulvio? Uh, Fulvio Ax, what is it? Ax, Axilla, Fulvius Axilla. C. And, uh, Machiste? Is I think how it's I guess said? so. Let me text Alan on these Italian pronunciations. Yeah, we should. Um, and Machiste is like a, apparently a famous film character that got his own spinoff after this movie. Like many, many spinoff movies. Yeah, he became a stock character in the same way that we would see someone like Pierrot be a stock character. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, he is played by an actor in blackface. Which is not fun. I mean, that was, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, old times were worse. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think the actor does a pretty good, uh, Bar- Bartolom- Bartolomeo pa- Pajano. <laughs> Ooh. We shouldn't say names without knowing how they are said. Or we just throw caution to the wind and say, say names. Sure. Um, but he went on to play this character for years and years and years. He was sort of a, uh, I guess he's he's sort of like a Hercules or Samson archetype. He's just a big, muscly, muscly guy who uh, who follows Fulvia around and helps him out. Yeah, um, yeah. He's uh, and yeah, they they get through some kind of heroic exploits. Makiste, uh, 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 like they they he. There's a lot of him just kind of like helping rescue uh, 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 uh and like kind of carrying her out of dangerous situations and caring for her and everything. Yeah. It's kind of, kind um, of sweet. Let's see. And the, the, the whole kind of like rescue from the, from the uh, sacrifice is a great, just a, a good action scene, like a genuinely good tense action scene where Cabaria is saved from the, the jaws of death at yeah. the last minute literally and then and then all hell breaks loose you know chaos ensues they have to run up onto the roof of or they 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 escape through uh to the outside of the temple through an eye yeah this big this big eye that's part of the outside of the temple like the big face on the front um and so then they're on the roof of the of the temple and there's like guards chasing after him and makiste is straight up throwing guards so he's yeah. guards up and th- he throws one off the roof. He throws one into this big, like, uh, lantern brazier thing. That's full of fire and just yeah. burns him alive. Yeah. Um, 
it's great. And so they, uh, uh, Fulvio is captured, um, or sort of they're they're separated, um, and Maquiste runs to the the gardens, and happens upon, uh, a sort of I guess princess would be her title, mm-hmm. um, and is like take take this child, uh, which she does, um, and then Maquiste is is captured, and uh chained in in the bowels of of the city to grind wheat yeah. very like a la uh conan the barbarian sort of situation yeah which um, i actually saw that i don't know if it's like people know this for sure but it's speculated that that that's where conan the barbarian got got it from oh was this movie oh interesting uh, um, i will say also it totally unrelated but as they're escaping off of the top of that Moloch building, it's all this like made out of, you know, giant oversized plaster things and people <laughs> scampering uh, on the top of a building uh, amongst oversized plaster things. And it reminded me of Mondo Burger from Good Burger, because that also <laughs> that also involves people um, uh, climbing up oversized, you know, fries and burgers and uh <laughs> and and milkshakes on the top of a building <laughs> i love see we we never know where like what these reference points are gonna like lead us to you know <laughs> like but oh cabaria inspired both conan the barbarian and good burger is what we're saying. <laughs> here wait speaking of i i've just received a pronunciation guide oh cabiria and machiste Ah, Cabiria and Machiste. <laughs> Grazie, Alan. Um, where was I? A lot of plot in this one. Yeah, a lot. It- uh, a lot of characters to keep track of with very long names. <laughs> yes. I mean, thankfully especially compared to the other Italian epics, I felt like this one focused on individual characters enough Mm -hmm. uh, in in a sort of more kind of personal way that it was able to, my big complaint with all that stuff was that because it was so grand, you never had any kind of emotional context for what was happening. Mm -hmm. And I think because of these viewpoint characters, because you want to see uh, Kabiria get out. Okay. um, And, uh, you, you get a little more invested in what is happening and, and it feels less like a bunch of spectacle with nothing behind it. Yeah. Yeah. You, we're, we at least have some characters to follow. There are arguably too many of them sometimes. Yeah. But I think the, the main ones, you know, we, there are some like sort of machinations of what's happening with like the war with Rome and things that, I kind of lost the plot there a little bit, but in terms of the actual yeah. emotional stakes of each scene, uh, those those were usually pretty clear. Yeah. Do you have anything else to say about this? I will say that this also includes Archimedes's mirror death ray. Archimedes is, almost has how, like a cameo in this movie. <laughs> how could I forget about the entire sequence where Archimedes invents a death ray and uses it to like burn all of the ships in the bay? Incredible. Yeah, it has Hannibal crossing the Alps. It has Archimedes. That too. Uh, it's got like a lot of just Western Civ stuff all rolled into one. Yeah. Um, and all of it looks 
really impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Very big scale, big props, um, you know, filmed in a lot of the original buildings, probably, that these things took place in. <laughs> Maybe. In ancient Italy. Um, um, yeah, I remember last week I complained about in, in Covatis... There's this, you know, the bit where it's like, ah, oh, all the majesty of Rome. And then we cut to a room somewhere. Yeah. Um, and this is quite the opposite. If if this is talking about majesty, it's like, oh, damn, they're not skimping yeah. on, the, on the scale or the majesty of anything. Giant um, cats and statues and giant demons breathing fire, etc. Yeah. Um, apparently all of the sort of like tracking and dolly shots... Made such an impact that they were referred to as uh, Caparilla shots by filmmakers afterwards. Sort, sort of like the way that, I guess, like the dolly zoom is, is called a vertigo shot. Mm-hmm. And and first-person shooters are called doom clones. Yeah, everyone still calls them that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, th- this movie definitely made an impact. Yeah. Um, my Other than... All of the blackface, obviously. My my sort of one thing that I was like, ah, I don't like this, is the ending, like the very end, because uh, it ends mm-hmm. with uh, kind of Cabrera being saved, and then kind of being paired up with Fulvio as like uh, like a romantic pairing, and that was just I don't know where that came from or why that needed to be in it. <laughs> It's like he's like thirty yeah. years older than her. Yeah, it's just like why? Why this now? Because we have to have. I don't know. I want to say that they. Didn't I didn't make buy it. That, I didn't buy it. They didn't make that explicit enough. I mean, I feel like that was what they were going for. But I was like, I want to think that that's not what they were going for. And it is a hundred percent what they were going for, <laughs> and I did not care for it. Um, but otherwise, I I thoroughly enjoyed this one. Yeah, this was a good one. I think this yeah. is about about as good as I could have expected a movie like this to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and the innovations in it and scale of it are really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that leads us to our final uh, feature of 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 the episode, which is mm-hmm. Tilly's punctured romance. Um, yeah. Directed, directed by, by Max Sennett. Max Sennett for his own Keystone and starring uh, Marie Dressler, uh, who came from... This was based on a a stage play, uh, and uh, she was in the play, so she, she plays the main character in both. Uh, and then also involving Mabel Normand, uh, Charlie Chaplin, and the Keystone Cops in this in this picture. Um. um one thing the first thing I learned about this movie is that it is oft credited as the first feature comedy. Mm-hmm. Although that is, as per usual, saying anything that's the first of something is pretty dubious. <laughs> um and I was trying I was trying to figure out like what is the first feature comedy? Yeah. Like, to to our current knowledge, like what what was it? And it's 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 kinda hard to say. Hmm. Um there was a 1913 Max Linder movie that ran between like 45 minutes and an hour. Oh, I didn't realize so, that. So, depending on the sort of cutoff point of like what makes it a feature, it may yeah. or may not kind of meet that length requirement. I saw this called um, the first American comedy feature film. But even that, there was another American comedy released a few months before this called A Florida Enchantment which is one of those Jacksonville 
made films. Mm. Um, which might technically be the first, but it's as with anything, which is like this is the first thing that did this. Yeah. Um, given how like something like ninety percent of all of silent films are lost. Yeah. Um, which is an insane st- statistic. So I think saying anything is the first of something is kind of you're you're setting yourself up for right. being wrong <laughs> because I mean, at was, any point someone could find something in a vault somewhere. I was I was thinking about this actually and how about this era in general and how um because so much of silent film is lost, right? What we're trying to do here is kind of paint a narrative of the path that movies took from the beginning until now, right? But just by the nature of us having lost so much of uh, the culture around that time, we really, I imagine what we're doing and what film historians have always done is we are painting a kind of false narrative uh, saying that, you know, this person who made good movies that still exist was a legend who was making good movies when there could have been dozens of other people making equally Mm -hmm. good movies. We're saying that this person's clearly inspired by this because they just happen to be two things that still exist. You know, there could have been other stuff. Yeah. Uh, So that, that concerns me a bit, but I mean, I guess it's the best that we can do with what we have to try and weave a narrative with the admission that um, this is all the knowledge that we have, yeah. and we don't know that it was this way. Well, I mean, one, I think one of the advantages of going going through as we're doing and being as exhaustive as we have been yeah. is sort of, there's been a lot of stuff that we're like, nope, that one's not true. Like, yeah, we saw yeah. it in this other thing, like, from three years before. Been, um, been able to fact check a lot of Wikipedia. I've gotten a little more skilled at Wikipedia editing because of this. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a lot of it's like it's 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 also funny just how little even beyond Wikipedia, there's there's conflicting information about a lot of these these yeah. things. Uh, just kind of kicking around. Um, and yeah, it, cha- it changes very. Uh, I feel like some of the movies that we've watched for this podcast ha- were only discovered like a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I think, I think trying to sort of paint a full picture of, of history by watching these isn't really possible. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think I, I'm, I've certainly gained a lot of knowledge about, how early some stuff started yeah, compared for to what sure. I knew before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what we do know this is the first of is the first Charlie Chaplin movie. Yes. Um, <laughs> that is That we know for sure. Um, and yeah, uh, this, co- this movie was... So I, I actually got like conflicting information about how much this movie cost. Um, hmm. Uh Max Sennett proposed a budget of $200,000, uh, but I guess the movie cost $50,000, which is what I read in two different places. Hmm. Um, but I think that uh, Murray Dressler was well known for 
being in this in the play that this was based on and various other uh, stage shows. And so they put her kind of top billing uh, Mm -hmm. because they wanted to know that like people all around the world were going to know, I guess who Marie Dressler was uh, uh, and to justify the the cost of making this entire Mm -hmm. feature film. Yeah. Got to get that star power. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And in later re-releases of this, Charlie Chaplin is billed, above her first yeah (laughs) Yeah. that sucks but it makes sense um how different this is from like not that long ago in american films when actors just had no credit (laughs) yeah true true um uh marie dressler definitely like stuck out to me as just very very different from the typical like a uh, female comedy star of the era. Yeah. Um, um, in some ways reminding me of like more, more modern uh, comedy. How so? Just, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but Marie Dresser, Def- I think her comedy falls into what I certainly have thought of as like more masculine comedy shtick hmm like i feel like marie dresser's character in this is like a a kevin james type i mean as it were i mean i think another reference point would be like melissa mccarthy um oh true maybe I, i feel like so the comedy in this movie is very broad it's very big um it's you know similar to the first chaplin piece a lot of the comedy in this movie is people falling down. <laughs> yes. So, um, so much of it. And, and I mean, maybe regrettably, uh, a lot of the comedy in this movie is also like the main character being kind of like an old, ugly and fat woman. Um, yeah, there is definitely, uh, that is definitely played as like laughing at the character more than with her. Yeah, a lot of it. She, I mean, the main character is basically the butt of the joke here, and mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like you know, fat person fall down is is the the way that a lot of Melissa McCarthy or Kevin James movies are built. So I could see that comparison. Um, so it's not like we're still not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is true. I do. I also a note that I made is when slapstick isn't done well, it comes across as abuse. And I think some of the yeah. some some of the stuff, especially early on, of uh, of Tilly just being like kicked and and slapped around a lot is just like all right, th- like I get what you're going for, but this isn't coming across as it's <laughs> yeah. supposed to. Well, yeah, I mean, Chaplin is this is him not playing the tramp; he's playing a villain in this movie, mm-hmm. um, and he's playing like he's playing this kind of scheming huckster who uh, is uh, basically. He's pretending to be attracted to Tilly, who is, like, twice his age, um, uh, just to, like, kind of scheme money out of her. Um, And when it turns out that her uncle uh, appears dead, like, there's kind of this, like, he and Mabel Normand are working together, and they're, like, a couple, and they're they're working together to try and, like, rip, rip off this person. And then they kind of leave her in the dust and take what they they can take from her. And 
then they find out that her uncle has died uh, while being an inv- a rich adventurer in, in mountains. <laughs> and um, Typical and, rich person stuff. And so she is inheriting all of his fortune and servants and mansion. And so almost in a, in a matrimony speed limit sort of way, uh, yeah. Charlie Chaplin, uh, uh, whose character is called, um, oh, what's he called in this? The, the stranger, uh, Charlie, oh. Cap- Charlie oh, Chaplin's oh character, the stranger, uh, rushes back and says, Tilly, take me back, take me back. Like, marry me, Tilly. And she's like, oh, uh, Okay. And then about three minutes later, the the lawyers show up and say, hey, you've inherited a giant fortune. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, like, Charlie Chaplin eats up the scenery in this movie. Oh, yeah. Um, He, you know, it's true that some of it kind of comes off bad, uh, that, that slapstick, but like, he he has really honed his craft from just from the beginning of this year to the end of the year when this was made. Um, and yeah, like the, the physical comedy is fantastic. I mean, it, they overdo it a lot but with all the yeah hour and 20 minutes of falling over. But yeah, I feel like through all of the, the keystone stuff that we've watched, especially sort of like seeing their sort of house style develop, I guess mm-hmm. is the thing I'm kind of struck by is that like, Narrative will always come second to the gags. Like seems individ- that way. Individual yeah. jokes are the the main draw. They're like what everyone is there for. Yeah. And so they don't really care about narrative that much. They're kind of just like, eh, some stuff happens. Like more people falling over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is a bit of a downside, I think. Um I, I think- mean yeah, I mean, the the other thing is that some of these Keystone movies tend to kind of overdo it a bit sometimes, where there's just, they're putting so much on screen at once. There's a little bit of just sort of like sensory overload in the movie. You gotta make those falls, th- those Pratt falls big and count, instead of having yeah. like 40 or 50 of them <laughs> yeah. all in a row. Um, the, the whole kind of like third act of this is... Uh, Tilly, the stranger, and Mabel Normand. I forget what her character name is. It's I think probably it Mabel. Her, it's Mabel. <laughs> um, they're in the mansion uh, when, you know, having a party. When um, the the rich uncle is discovered at the base of the mountain and he's not dead. And so he comes back to the mansion. And meanwhile, there there's, you know, some conflict going on between Tilly and Charlie Chaplin and Mabel. And uh, Tilly ends up getting a gun and, like, shooting up the whole party. <laughs> shooting the gun in the air. Um, trying to shoot Charlie or the stranger. Um, and it's just this whole, this whole like, chase through the, through the mansion that then at, they get chased out of the mansion when the rich uncle shows back up. And then some Keystone cops are chasing after them. Also... And it all kind of com- culminates at uh, at the docks, um, and there's like two different groups of Keystone cops in two different boats, who are like crisscrossing and like smashing into each other. There's like Keystone cops chasing them on land. Tilly falls into the ocean and has to, 
they're trying to pull her out on like a a winch, and then it yeah. falls and she falls back in the ocean. Uh, that was that was a good gag. They got a lot of good stuff out of that, uh, out they of that did. rope gag. <laughs> um, and then the ending of this I did actually really like because it ends with uh, they're all back in the dock and uh, Charlie Chaplin's kind of trying to make make peace. And both Mabel Normand and Tilly are like, we're done with you. Like, yeah. you've, you've caused us both nothing but misery. And so they, like, give him the boot and then they kind of become, they bond at the end. Yeah. There are a lot of complaints about this movie, I would say, but I had, an, I had a fun time watching it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's fun. It's, I uh, think it, 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 um, it might have been better suited as a short yeah it does feel yeah. like it's maybe a bit stretched to to be a feature yes yeah this could have um, fit comfortably in half an hour or or something like that mm-hmm. um and then it would have stopped us from being overloaded with Pratt falls um, <laughs> um also released this year although we did not watch it uh was the dw griffith's last biograph movie yes they they waited until uh, months after it was filmed, after D.W. Griffith left the company, so that they wouldn't have to pay him any of the box office money. <laughs> it's um, so slimy. It is, but he deserves it. Yeah. <laughs> um, that movie's Judith of Bethulia. Um, but we didn't watch it because, yeah. But th- these, yeah, we've got we've got. You know, seven hours of D.W. Griffith coming up uh, in, the, in the next uh, <laughs> in the next two weeks, so yeah. we figured we'd had our fill. But um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, you know, Griffith was really wanting to direct longer, more involved things, yeah. and um, it was the the MPCC, uh, which is starting to break down around this time, um, that was prevent and Biograph's pocketbook, I guess, that was preventing him from being able to do so. Um, so next year we see him making his, his magnum opus. Indeed. His Um, most famous movie that, yeah. Oh boy. Most most famous silent movie. Yeah. We got a big, we got, we got a big thing coming up next week. Definitely. Probably Um, the biggest sense trip to the moon. Yeah. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Well, I guess that that'll that'll about wrap it up. Now that you got that little preview of next week, yeah. Um, next next week on one week one year. Next year, a week on year <laughs> movie. Um, <laughs> well, you can uh, follow us on the links in the description slash one week one year on Twitter and Instagram, uh, and you can follow us individually. I guess if you want to. Hello, um, but. Uh, um, uh, please, uh, you know, subscribe and like and all that kind of stuff. Whatever you got you to put put our our tags up on the on the screen for the video version. Oh my god! I don't 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 make <laughs> me do that. Um, the lower thirds. Figure it. Out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, f- figure it out, people. You can yeah. you can click a description. Um, you probably I, if you're listening to this, you, you probably know us already. So you know. Unless you're that one, uh, that one guy with a Cyrillic username that commented on on one of our videos, in which case, hello, uh, uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for liking the podcast. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess that'll about do it. Um, and and of course, you can follow Marco at uh, at Fleetwood Marco. 
Uh, so thanks to him for coming on. Uh, and yeah, Glenn, uh, I will see you next year. See you next year. <laughs>